A little later, they speak against Jesus because he and his disciples didn't fast. In the next chapter, they speak against him because he and his disciples took some ears of grain on the Sabbath. That same day, Jesus healed a man whose right hand was shriveled. And they condemn him for healing on the Sabbath. And Luke says at the end of this, they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And when a sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, they spoke against him. They said, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was that was touching him. She's a sinner. In the next chapter, Jesus' mothers and brothers get into the, the scene, and they thought he was going off the deep end, wanted to talk some sense into him. Jesus' own family. There were some accused, they accused Jesus of casting out demons through the power of the prince of demons, remember? Jesus said, you can't, Beelzebub doesn't cast out devils. Later, Jesus healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath, and the ruler of the synagogue becomes indignant, speaks against Jesus to anyone who'd listen. Jesus, the tax collectors, remember this one? Jesus with the tax collectors. Luke says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering against him. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It was a sign spoken against. And then that takes us up to the end of his life. Of course, we know Judas, his very own disciple, his treasurer, the Thelmas. Where's Thelma? The Thelmas of the church, the treasurer of the church. Don't get any ideas. Our head of security is in here somewhere. She, or sorry, she, he, Judas. <laughs> Thelma would never do this. Judas, what's he do? He, he plots, he betrays Jesus, the man that he had been following, just for just a few pieces of silver. But it wasn't just Judas, then there was Peter. Judas betrayed him for silver to have him killed. Peter denied he ever knew him. Cursed. Cursed, swore that he never knew this man. The same man that Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church. Out of your ministry I'll build the church. Even the criminals in his dying breath, the criminal hanging on his side was cursing him. He was a sign spoken him against. When you determine to live like Jesus, you'll be a sign and a wonder spoken against. Jesus promised it. In Matthew 24, 9, he said, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Well, that's a great encouraging promise, Jesus. We want to live our best life now. And Jesus' promise for you is you'll be handed over and persecuted to death. That sounds like a great best life now. Don't get mad at me when I'm telling you the truth. John 15, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. Our problem in the church world today is that we're trying so hard to be friends with people that God says they'll always hate you. There's enmity between the Son of Man and God. It's always existed. And so we're not 
in the pursuit of friendship with the world. Our pursuit in life is for Jesus and Him alone, not friendship with the world. You say, well, pastor, are you saying we're to be ugly with the world and reject the world? That's not what I'm saying at all. But you need to stop trying to uh, get, oh, get in the uh, influence of the world when Jesus said they're going to hate you. Will Jesus move you and give you favor in, in, in your work and all of the things? Absolutely. But my pursuit, my seeking first is of the kingdom, not trying to win friends and influence people. Did you hear what I'm saying? The world is going to reject you. They're not going to like, especially if you make it a point in your life, if you make it a point in your life to live like Jesus, they're going to be offended by who you are. They're going to say things like, you're judging me. Well, why would you want to pray for me? Am I, am I not good enough? I, someone told me yesterday, someone had, had them tell them that, they, well, I don't have sin in my life. I've, you know, the, you know, the Bible talks about that, that he who says they have no sin is a fool. I've never heard anyone actually have the guts enough to say, I don't have sin in my life, but... They're spiritual, these are spiritual matters discerned by spiritual minds, the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so, just as Paul tells us, that they, th these things are a conflict. These, the spiritual truths of the Word of God are a conflict for the natural mind. The Word of God exposes the carnality and the depravity of man, and man doesn't like it. I mean, just think about it. I mean, church people don't like it. We don't, we don't want to be convicted. People get mad and leave churches because they get convicted. Let me tell you how many times I've been told, I've been convicted in your church and I don't want to go to your church. Let me tell you how many times I've had people tell me, I don't need more of the Lord. Stop preaching. I need more of Him. I got all I need. Let me tell you the stories. We don't like that. We don't want to be told. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want conviction. But God says, those whom I love, I chastise, I convict. He loves us and he's pursuing us. And so these things are spiritually discerned, not of the natural mind. And people get offended by that spiritual reality, especially in the world we live. I mean, goodness, if you start talking biblical principles about carnal things in the world in which we live, I don't need to go down a litany of worldly principles I mean, we can touch everything from politics to abortion to homosexuality, all the things. You can go down the list and what the Bible says about all of those things, right? And, and it offends people. It offends the mind. It offends the carnality of humanity. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when those things happen. Does it mean that we intentionally tried to get in arguments and all of those things? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they're going to be offended by me, they'll be offended by you. Revival always causes conflict. When we talk about being people of his glory, when we talk about being people who pursue his presence, it always causes conflict. Conflict. If you look at revival, you know, everybody says, I want revival. Well, there's a cost to revival. 
I want to be, I want our church to be a place of his glory. Awesome. There's a cost to pay for that. And one of those costs is your reputation. One of those costs is it's going to be messy. One of the costs is that you're going to be one of those people, like on the day of Pentecost, they looked at and said, oh, they're drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning and they're absolutely wasted and they're, they're rolling around and laughing and praying in this unknown language. What are they doing? They're foolish. They're drunk. They're intoxicated. You become one of those people. You become one of those holy rollers, one of those people that are unusual, one of those people that believe in the power of healing, one of those people that believe in the power of salvation, one of those people that believe in the power of prayer. You're one of those people. Yeah, absolutely I am, proudly. I am one of them. But, but revival comes at that cost. You have to acknowledge there will be people who will criticize every revival in history. You go back and you find the criticisms of, of the worldly people. You find criticisms not just of the worldly people, you find criticisms within the church. Pastors attacking the move of God. Pastors, att- goodness, if I, I could tell you story after story of pastors who've spoken against me, spoken against our ministry. Oh, that's where people fall on the floor. That's where, why do they fall on the floor in that church? Why do they laugh? That was a good one too. Why do they laugh? Heard that a lot. Why do they laugh in your church? Well, would you rather them be depressed? Would you rather them be going out, committing suicide, being sad and lonely and fearful? I'd rather them come in and find the joy of the Lord, be delivered, be set free. I'd rather them come in and find peace and change their world. I finally told one of them one time, I said, can you just leave us alone? I did. I, I called him. I said, can you just leave us alone? Because the people who are falling on the floor laughing are getting up and going and changing the world. So just leave them alone. So, so criticisms are going to happen. <laughs> and it happens for a couple reasons. It happens because people don't know. It happens because they're, they're just ignorant. They don't know. And I don't mean that negative. They just don't know that they don't know. They don't know that this is a sovereign work of the Lord. They don't know that his glory is, is from age to age. They don't know that, that this very thing that we're talking about, preaching about, living and worshiping, all these things, this is biblical. This is, this is the work of Jesus. They don't understand that. And then there's, there's always those who are afraid of excesses. They're always, they, you know, you're going to get carried away. You're, gonna get, you're just going to get too happified and get fleshly. You're just going to get too, too, too carried away and be in the flesh. Can I, can I just help you? Because I grew up, I just, I mean, personal story. I grew up in a church where it was taught that you couldn't be, you know, in the flesh. You didn't want to be in the flesh. You didn't want to worship in the flesh. And you didn't want to, if you were going to dance, you had to dance in the spirit. Anybody heard that? Well, I don't know what dancing in the spirit is, but okay. Because last time I checked, when I dance... I'm in my body. The last time I checked, when I clap, I'm in my body. The last time I checked, when I, when I worship and sing, I'm in my body. When I preach, I'm in my body. If I weren't in my body doing these things, I'd be dead. I would certainly be in the Spirit. But while I'm in this world, in this life, I'm in the flesh. 
and I worship in the flesh. I tell my body, you're going to dance unto the Lord. I tell my, I tell my body, you're going to sing to the Lord. I tell my body, you're going to clap unto the Lord. And that, my friend, that, that's not excess. That's Bible. That's biblical order. That we worship God in the fullness of His holiness. The fullness of His holiness. That's what we're called to do. Now, what, what people have done, when Jesus said the Father, let me just extrapolate where that comes from. Jesus said, my Father is seeking those who worship me in spirit and in truth. And so what the church has done over the years is they've taken that phrase, in spirit, you've got to worship in the spirit, and they've twisted the meaning of what Jesus said when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman. What he was saying is it needs to be directed. Your, your worship is spirit-led. Your worship is spirit-led and in truth. The word he used for truth is reality. That you worship in spirit-led reality of who God is. He's, that's the kind of worship he's looking for. So what that means is, well, what's the reality of who God is? Well, his word tells you. His word tells you who the reality of is, who, who he is. And so the Holy Spirit illuminates as you worship that he won't fail. He takes the scripture this morning as we were singing. He won't fail. The Holy Spirit takes that and illuminates that in your heart and you worship out of that. It's not worship in the flesh. What, what, the, old, what the church in historical terms has meant is that we worship out of our hype out of our emotion and unfortunately it's the very thing the church has become that we worship out of hype and emotion there's a there's some sort of performance that we that motivates us to worship we got to sing the right song have the right lights enough fog in the building to make it ambient enough to worship that's not worship that's not spirit-led worship that's performance that's the very thing that Jesus was speaking against do you hear me? But the thing that he was saying, uh, is anybody, is this helping anybody? The thing that he was saying is that we're spirit led in our worship. The Holy Spirit illuminates in our heart the goodness of God and it overflows in worship. Amen. Good preaching, pastor. I'll keep going. So, so people are worried. The whole point of all that is that people get worried about excess, that you're going you're gonna to get carried away. Well, get carried away. What is wrong with getting carried away and worshiping God? You can't exaggerate Him. You couldn't, and all of your dancing and shaking and jerking and worshiping and singing and all the things could not worship Him enough. You just can't never get there. You can't ever get there. You can't get to the end. He's eternal. Now, what people are afraid of is, like I said, they're the fleshly. Well, yeah, sure, there's fleshly things happening. That's, that's called discipleship. But it doesn't mean that we stop worshiping because people get carried away. It doesn't mean that we stop praying for people. Goodness, if, I, if we stop praying for people just because people courtesy drop and don't fall under the power of God, we, goodness. Why do you think we have catchers? It's not for the people falling under the power. You fall under the power, you never know it. 
we have catches for the people who are crazy and just think I'll just fall because it sounds good. Everybody else is falling, so I'll fall. I've watched people hit concrete and not even know it. I've watched, I've watched people hit solid pews and not even know it. I've seen pews break and people not even know it. Under the power. You, just, you know, when God touches you, he, you, you just go with it. <laughs> but people are afraid of access. You know, if that were true in the New Testament church, then there's great New Testament examples of this. In the New Testament, they would stop selling their possessions and giving out uh, money and support to all of the people. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They got a little carried away. They, they abused what God was doing in the church in that moment, and they went and sold their property and kept some of it for themselves. God handled his business. They died in church in front of the preacher. God handled his business. He always does. I, I've, never, uh, I've never been worried about people who rise up against me because God has a way of handling his business. If, I, don't, I don't profess to be perfect, but if it's God, I'm not worried. He's got it covered. So if we made a determination on, on every person that stopped doing things the right way and said, well, let's just stop, then we would do nothing. People, you know, I've had people say, well, why don't you do stop this or stop that? If I stop every single thing that happens in service publicly, nobody would do anything. Everybody would be terrified to breathe. We had someone one time, I'll tell you the story and I'll move on. I'll, I've got so many stories. But I had, the, we had this, <laughs> we had this, we had, I don't think she's here. <laughs> if this woman's here, just forgive me. This isn't meant to be offensive. Uh, we had this, we had this woman one time, it's hilarious to me, that's why I'm telling it. We had this woman one time come into the service and she thought she could get every, this was probably in the first six months of us being here. She thought she could get everybody up and dancing. And uh, we, I was over here worshiping, and I saw this lady. She was over here, and she started making her way up the aisles, trying to get people up to dance with her. And you have to understand, our church was not what it was then, what it is now. And uh, this, is, this is eight, nine years ago, and we were by far not what we are today. And uh, it was a totally different Baptist church. Anyway, so, so when I... When I saw that lady walking through, I, I thought, sweetheart, if you could get him up and dance, more power to you. Knock yourself out. <laughs> and I had people get mad at me and send us letters and emails and all sorts of stuff. Why didn't you stop that woman from trying to... She was just trying to dance her heart out with Jesus and trying to get people to engage with her. Now listen, don't go around trying to get people up and dancing if they don't want to dance. Don't misunderstand me. Do not do that. But if you have some friends that you want to get together and dance around the front and worship, I'm okay with that. But she, oh my goodness, you know, crazy things. And if we would have said, no dancing in church, stop that woman, cast the devil out, get her out of here. I promise you we would not be where we are today. <laughs> so there, are, there is a place. Now, did we disciple on the backside? Absolutely we did. When, did we help people on the backside of that? Absolutely we did. 
Did we have leadership conversations about that and how to handle it in the future? Absolutely we did. But if we stop everything because somebody gets a little crazy, we would do nothing. Another good example in the New Testament church, Paul actually writes to the Corinthian church about this. It's a great problem. <laughs> it's a great one. And, you know, we read, out of, we read out of 2 Corinthians about the Last Supper, right? Paul says, I received from the Lord that which was, you know, all the thing. And he goes into the whole dissertation about the Last Supper, right? Well, do you know why he was writing that? If you read the preceding verses, the problem at the Church of Corinth, the Church of Corinth had a lot of problems. Like, they, 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 had, issue, they had some issues. <laughs> they, they had some issues. But they had issues of excess, one, in a lot of areas, but <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. But, the, but one of the issues of excess that they had was that people wouldn't wait to receive communion together. When the Lord's Supper was served, they would, everybody would just do it on their own, and there was no unity in it. And so Paul's instruction to them was, you need to wait for one another. You need to receive communion together. The whole point of this is about doing it together. And so had they decided, the early church decided, well, because we have a church over in Corinth that can't handle communion, right? We just need to stop the Lord's Supper. Right? How much error would they be in? So things like that are going to happen. And it causes people to criticize when they don't understand. There's people that criticize because... Revival doesn't come in the way they expected. Oftentimes, it looks like I wanted to be the host. I should have been the pastor. I should have been the evangelist. That should have been my church. Or it should have happened this way. Can I just tell you, God will do what he wants with the people who are hungry whenever he wants. And we say, more Lord. We welcome that. And so... There are times, there are biblical principles. You know, there are biblical principles, for example, about spiritual gifts. There's, there's biblical principles as pastors and leaders that we follow. We look to the scriptures to give us guidance. But a lot of times we get so enamored with the mechanics. Well, this should work this way, and if it doesn't happen this way, then it's not God. Is that true? We get so caught up in the mechanics, we have to stick to the Word of God. We have to stick to the Word of God and not allow, well, that certainly didn't look like I thought it would. I've seen some weird things. I have to, I, I've seen some weird things in church. Heather was reminded me a few weeks back of the story of the man that was sitting in one of the services and when. He started, and I, please don't do this, but he started burping out the alphabet. Uh, the Lord started, te- and I, he just started getting, he started getting liberated. He started getting set free, and uh, he started, and there's no biblical precedent for this. Don't go try to find it. There's no, it's not there. But it sounded like he was burping out the alphabet. And in the natural, that could become so offensive. If you, in church, as a Christian, you sit there and you watch that. You're like, why is he doing that? And there's, listen, there's no difference in you judging that than the person that's standing at the back saying, why are they falling on the floor? 
There's no difference. Sometimes God does things intentionally to offend our natural mind. Sometimes God does things a little odd just to offend our natural mind. Now, I'm not advocating everybody start burping the ABCs. If you do that, I tell you, you will have a conversation with one of our pastors. I promise you. I promise you. It will happen. And it, and it won't be a negative conversation. It'll be, what was God doing? <laughs> yeah, I tell, it will. We're not coming in to beat you up. We'll just say, what was God doing? And you have, better have a scripture. You better have Jesus in there somewhere. Amen. You know, maybe, maybe there's a verse for every letter of the alphabet. He's Alpha. <laughs> A. <laughs> He's the beginning and the ending. <laughs> He's my conqueror. Hallelujah. He's my deliverer. Praise Jesus. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Second Timothy. Second Timothy tells us he's you know, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, Understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. You're going to face it. You're going to see it. In the last days, there will be days of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is church people. This is church people. This is a warning to Paul about church people in the last days. Pay attention. So we know that there's going to come a time. The Bible talks about the great falling away in the last days. The Bible talks about the Laodicean spirit, this pervasive falling away that the love of many will grow cold. There will be people who are offended by truth because they'd rather live this list, they'd rather live this way, as Paul's telling Timothy, this is what's going to happen. But we understand, as Simeon said, you're a sign and a wonder that will be spoken against. The power of God, the work of God in your life, God with us, Emmanuel, you will be a sign and a wonder. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called 
Wonderful. Wonderful. What does that word wonderful mean? A sign and a wonder. This, this Savior, this Jesus, the work of God in your midst will be called a wonder and a sign. The work of God among you is a sign and a wonder. Wonderful. The wonderful God. Emmanuel. God with us. And Isaiah 7.14, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. He's working in our midst. Jesus, the sign of all signs, the wonders of all wonders. Isaiah 7.14 says He will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and call His name Emmanuel. You have the sign, the work, the wonder of God in your midst. So when we yield to the work of Jesus, we're yielding to the work that He's a sign, He's a wonder, and will be spoken against. Luke 2, 12, and this shall be a sign to you. You'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's a sign to you and I. He's a sign to this world. And when He works through us, He's using you and I. He's moving in our midst. We become signs and wonders. To the world around us, just as Christ was, just as he was Emmanuel, God with us, and just as he was a sign and a wonder, and we become signs and wonders to the world around us, we become a rock of offense. We become a rock of offense spoken against. In Hebrews 12, in verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What happens, if you just leave that verse up there for a moment, what happens? Considered him who endured from sinners such hostility. Paul is writing saying, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. You can actually be strengthened. You can grow in your inner man and be strengthened by recognizing the hostility that Christ faced. You can be encouraged. You can be built up and say, just as he faced the scoffers and the mocking and the brutality of his day, if he endured such hostility, then he'll work in me. He'll work and strengthen me to endure in my day. He'll work in you to endure in your day. When the scoffers come and the mocking comes and the hostility comes and you're living this out as a rock of offense, you can say, just like Jesus, I can endure for the joy that was set before me. And all of a sudden, the, the, the hostility of people around you becomes the, the place of your drunkenness. I'm not talking about natural intoxication. I'm talking about drunken, drinking in the river of his intoxicating love. It's there in that place when you hear the insults and the slanders. What do you think happened on the day of Pentecost when they heard people saying, they're drunk. Look at those people. It didn't stop it. It caused it to spread. It caused what God was doing. It caused His power and His love and the demonstration of His glory to just fan into flame and spread. How do I know? Peter stood up. 3,000 were born again. Their lives were changed. The glory they were experiencing came on other people and changed their lives. So when, when people say what they want to say, let it drive you further into the presence of God. Let it drive you further into His power. And it, and it will overflow just everywhere you go. Romans 9.30 says, But that 
Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Israel, they pursued, they didn't reach. Why? Paul makes it really plain. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled. They stumbled over the stone of offense. They stumbled over this cornerstone, the, the stone that the builders rejected, 1 Peter 2, 8, the stone that the builders rejected has become our chief cornerstone. They fell, they got tripped over the stone of Christ. They tripped over, they couldn't embrace by faith this gospel of grace. It became a rock of offense. And that is the same thing that happens today, time and time again, that they don't understand People don't understand the work of God and they get offended by it. Jesus even told his own disciples, does this offend you? There's the door. Does, this, does what I'm telling you offend you? His message is offensive to the natural mind. The truth of God, the work of God is offensive. But it's a sign and a wonder and it's a fragrant it's fragrant to those of us, the Bible says, to those of us that are being saved, those of us that are being changed, those of us that are being transformed. This work of God is a fragrant offering. It's the sweet-smelling aroma of His name. It's the oil poured forth. It's the river of His presence. It's the fire of the Holy Ghost. It's the wind of His presence. Come on, somebody. It's the cloud of His glory. Those things to us, they're, they're not offensive. It's the very things that we embrace and say, God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's a sign and a wonder. He may be a rock of offense, but to me, he's a sign and a wonder. He's wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. He's working in me. He's changing me. He's working in our church. And we love it and we embrace it. So there will always be those who love and embrace him and those who will find him offensive. But today, but today we find him as the oil poured forth, as the river of his presence, as the cloud of his glory. So what do we do? What do we do that we know that he's a sign and a wonder? What do we do? Jesus, number one, is our sign Jesus is our sign. He is the wonder. We don't need any other signs or wonders. I thank God that out of his presence, out of who he is, out of who he is flow signs and wonders. I, I'm, I love that out of his very nature, the essence of who he is, comes healing, comes joy, comes peace. And these aren't just concepts. He manifests himself in those ways. He manifests himself in healing. He manifests himself, himself in peace. He manifests himself in joy. He manifests himself in all these ways. Signs and wonders. He is a sign and wonder. And so when he shows up, signs and wonders happen. I don't pursue any of the, the other, the, the signs and wonders, all the things, right? Because he is the sign. He is enough. And when he's here, when he's with me, all of those things happen because of who he is. So one, Jesus is the sign and way. Two, and out of his nature comes signs and wonders. And then three, you just learn to embrace the cost of being spoken against. 
Learn to embrace it. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. Don't get mad when it happens. Don't gossip about the people who are doing it. Just embrace it. The Lord is changing me. (laughs) When they speak, the Lord is using it to change me. When they say their ugly things, He's giving me peace. He's giving me joy. He's changing my life in the middle of their what they don't understand. I view them. When you embrace being spoken against, you recognize in the moment their limitation. They are incapable of seeing with spiritual eyes. They're blinded. They don't see through spiritual eyes. There's a difference. And number four, you can grow strong in the times of persecution. When you consider the testing of Christ, when you consider the hostility that he faced, you can be strengthened in your inner man. You know that if he endured, he overcame. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I've overcome. You're an overcomer. He overcame hostility. He overcame death. He overcame the crucifixion. That means that you're an overcomer. That means you have on the inside of you a spiritual lineage of victory. Did you hear me? On the inside of you right now, you have the spiritual DNA for victory. Well, I'm glad about three of you got that. Living on the inside of you is the very DNA to overcome. I want you to think about that. I used the example, we had our training yesterday, and I used the example of the butterfly. Because the, this, the, little, the little tiny caterpillar, that little tiny caterpillar has on the inside of it the DNA to become a beautiful butterfly. It's there. Every time he's inching along the little leaf, the DNA for beautiful flying butterfly is there. But it's not until that butterfly dies that it's realized. It's not until that butterfly curls up in that little cocoon and dies that it realizes the potential that it has. So you have on the inside of you DNA. The Bible, the Bible talks about, Paul says, we're, being, we're beholding his glory and being transformed into the same image. We're being metamorphosized, is the, is the Greek. We're being changed into the same image. There's DNA on the inside of you to look and live in victory just like Jesus. So what does hostility and offense and all those things, testings do? Pushes you into your cocoon. It pushes you into the cocoon to say, die, baby, die. Let the glory emerge. Let the beauty emerge. Die, death to self, and let the glory of God emerge. Amen. Amen. Y'all are too good. I feel like I could just keep preaching. Why don't you stand to your feet? Worship team, keep coming. Come on back. (laughs) We just keep on going.
changed, transformed. Sign and a wonder spoken against. You know, we started this series as we're, as we're wrapping up. We started this series because I want you to be people of his glory. I want you to be full, saturated with his glory. I believe. I'm not, I'm not just up here blowing smoke, and I'm not just telling you things just because they sound good. I believe this. I believe on the inside of you, right now, created by the creator of the universe, on the inside of you is the DNA for something beautiful. The glory of the Lord. The glory of God to be emerged in your life. I believe that. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because when you get born again, you're given a new DNA. The Bible says you're no longer of the father, the devil. You've been adopted. You've been adopted in. You've been given a new name. You've been given a seat at the table. You have a blood covenant. And when... when you, you've, had, you've had a transfusion this morning and didn't even know it. You had a transfusion of new blood, Savior blood. And inside that blood houses these little tiny cells. And in them little tiny cells, it's called DNA. And when you have DNA that's God DNA, that D, the DNA inside your body, you, you with me? The DNA, the little DNA inside your body, you can't even see it with your natural eye. You have to have a really high-powered microscope to see it. That little tiny DNA. You can't see it. Just hang with me. That little tiny, 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 you can't see it with your natural eye DNA tells your whole body what it's going to do. Tells your body what color your eyes are. Do you have hair on your head or not? Is it gray, brown, or some other color? What color your skin is? Do you walk with the lip? You know, y'all do the DNA test, right? You, you, there's all sorts of stuff they can tell you about yourself just based on your DNA. All... If I were to extract your spiritual DNA this morning, it'd tell me a whole lot about you. It'd tell me how you're born again. It'd tell me how you're victorious. It'd tell me how you're sealed for the day of redemption. It'd tell, it'd tell me how you're full of the goodness of the Lord. It'd tell, me how, it'd tell me about the faithfulness of God in your life. It'd tell me about the glory of God in your life. It tell me that you're the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus. How do I know that? It's all right here in the book. It tells me what your DNA is. So that's who you are. That's who you are. And so my point in saying all that is, I believe that you are carriers of his glory. If you're born again here in this morning, you're a carrier of the glory of God. Now, here's another fascinating thing about DNA. When you're a little baby, 
Is the DNA inside of you to be an adult? Yeah. Your DNA doesn't change when you hit 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. DNA doesn't change. It's static. It's all pre-programmed. It's all in there. So when you're a baby in Christ, the DNA to be a grown adult in Christ, mature in Christ, experiencing all the, it's all there. It's all there. The question is about maturity. Have you matured? Have you grown up? Have you developed? So you might be looking at your life today saying, well, pastor, I hear you. I'm a carrier of the glory, all the things, but I don't see it. I'm not seeing it yet. Well, how mature are you? Doesn't mean that it's not there. Doesn't mean that the glory is not there. Doesn't mean that the DNA isn't already programmed for the greater things of God in your life. It's just that you haven't embraced it yet. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it manifest yet. And the way to get there is to grow up. <laughs> to grow up. You got to move from being baby to adult. So, I believe it's there. We're going to pray for a release of DNA this morning. A release that things that the Lord's promised, things that the Lord has spoken over you will begin to come to fruition. That the things that are programmed on the inside of you, come on, the altar is open. We want to pray this morning. Lay hands on you. Believe this. The Lord, I want to come into agreement with you that the things that have been spoken, that you've been waiting on, that are resident in your heart, resident on the inside of you. Come, to, come on, come on, come to pass. Come on, lay hands and pray for folks. Come on, come on, come quick. Don't wait, don't look around who's coming not, you just come. Come on, I know you haven't, I know you're not all the way there yet. You haven't been made perfect, so. I know some of you are close, but you have something. 